Have you ever known one of those people who uh, has to read the last page of a book before they read the entire book? It, it's uh, it's kind of weird to me, but I have known people this way. They pick it up, they read the last page, and somehow that determines to them if they want to read the book or not. It would terrify me because I don't want the ending spoiled, right? You know, like I want to see it, you know, take place as it goes. But there are some folks that are just determined that you have to read the end to understand it. And if you did this with the Gospels, the stories about Jesus' life, if you read the last page first, you would be uh, given a really interesting impression of how different they are, despite the fact that most of their content is similar. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke write the three Gospels that we tend to call the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, and part of the reason that these Gospels are related is, to the best of our knowledge, they actually... Uh, copy each other. Uh, the best we know, Mark wrote first, and then Matthew and Luke, when they wrote Gospels, picked up Mark and used some of his material, as well as material that they gathered themselves, as well as maybe a mutual uh, third source called Q that gets into nerdy stuff you don't care about. But anyways, it appears that these were written kind of in relationship with each other. And this is why a lot of times the stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke appear in all three, or at least appear in two, and they look really, really similar. And, you know, we might say, well, those are just things Jesus did, but when you study on a literary level, sometimes it's the exact same words, the exact same phrases. Uh, I have a big, really ridiculously expensive book that has these three Gospels in Greek side by side, and you can see that they use the same exact words in certain places. So they have this interesting literary connection, but they all end very differently. The endings of the Gospels, the, post, uh, the post-death, the resurrection appearances of Jesus, these in all three Gospels are vastly, vastly different. And so it's really helpful to us to see sort of the ideas of the author when we look at the way their Gospel ends. Why they end it the way they do says a lot about their purposes in writing. If you're new with us, we've been going through the book of Matthew, and this is our last week. Matthew 28, the last chapter, we have finally got there. 28 weeks of Matthew. Some of you are probably very ready to move on to something else. But uh, I think it's been interesting to see Jesus kind of turn his world upside down, uh, turn the world upside down. And it ends with Jesus giving what we call the Great Commission. This is material that is only in the book of Matthew. And it's interesting because throughout the book, we've talked about the kingdom of God, the reign of Jesus, the way that Jesus would make the world different if his will was done. Uh, In the Lord's Prayer, we see that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, gives us the scene of Jesus sort of crowned in his glory, fresh off his resurrection in power and authority and in control. And he is bringing to him his disciples to send them out and to do the will of the king in the world. This upside down kingdom we've talked about is initiated here in two ways. In one way, Jesus is announcing what has already happened. He is announcing his resurrection, his victory over death, the fact that that life will never be the same. But he's also bringing in that kingdom and reign by sending them out to do the kinds of things that will transform the world into what he has given the vision it should be. 
In other words, when he says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are persecuted, when he talks about how the world should be upside down and that we should care for the poor and that we should welcome children and that we should treat women with respect, all these things that Jesus has done throughout his gospel, he now sends out his disciples to teach the world to live that way, to bring that vision into reality. And this is what it looks like. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Then the... uh, I don't know what that is. All right, go ahead. Next. uh, Oh, I see what's going on. I know what I did. So that's what we're going to do is we're going to go through this verse by verse. And that's very confusing. I did something unusual, Kevin. Uh, What I want to do is I want to climb through this uh, verse by verse just to see the little things that this passage is telling us about what Jesus' desire is for his disciples, what Matthew wants to end his story of Jesus on. Uh, First of all, this verse, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to a mountain where Jesus told them to go. Uh, This passage is really dense because it tells you little emotional cues that you have to think about. These men had lived in Galilee for a long time. They had worked together in there with the 12 disciples and Jesus going around teaching people. And you can imagine the emotion for them as they enter into Galilee. They're in their old stomping grounds, but as the text makes very clear, there are 11 of them. There's not 13 of them. Because Jesus is gone and Judas has killed himself. And so just that expression, the eleven entered Galilee, says we are back in our old home but not with the same people we left with. This is the first time these men are returning to their home with two of their brothers gone in very different ways. And so uh, Galilee is a place of obedience, right? This passage opens, Matthew, by using the phrase Galilee and the 11, he's kind of reminding you that Galilee and the Great Commission is for the obedient, for the people who do as they're told. Uh, You can even see uh, in that verse, right? Uh, Go to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus told them to go, right? Obedience is just like the overwhelming uh, uh, roof over which this entire passage works. The eleven are the obedient who have stayed with Jesus, and they are now doing what he said and returning to Galilee, the place of ministry, because Jesus is about to send them out to be similarly obedient in the world. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. This is just a fun little note for us. Uh, Sometimes for those of us that struggle with doubt, we think sometimes we'll say things like, if I met Jesus in person... If the resurrected Jesus would just show up to me in a vision, if I could be walking down the street and Jesus could come up and say, hey, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, here's the nail holes, I really died on the cross, I really raised from the dead, you can believe me. Some of us think that that would help us have more faith. And what this passage tells us is that's probably not true. 
These were 11 men that spent all their time with Jesus. They knew him intimately. And even when he appears after his resurrection, they have seen this man dead and put in a tomb. They know that he's been brought back to life. They know that he has the power of God reanimating his body quite literally. And when they come to him, they're like, I don't know. I'm still not sure about all this. It shows you that us human beings are just, we're prone towards doubt. Uh, And it's comforting for some of us because we see that the disciples doubted as well. But it also shows us that no amount of proof will ever get you there all the way. There at some point comes a moment of faith where you believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Then Jesus came to them and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, This is a really interesting expression to me. Uh, Authority is something we don't talk about uh, too much. Uh, if anything, it's almost like a byline, right? Like, uh, is it Cartman on South Park? Respect my authority, right? Like, it was just kind of a, a joke. That's an old joke at this point. Maybe I, nobody remembers this. But um, authority is just a weird word. We don't like anybody, like, ex- exercising authority. But we have here is Jesus in all of, I mean, this is a moment of great authority for Jesus. Uh, resurrection proves Jesus' right to say all the things that Jesus has said. Up until his death, there is an argument to be made that Jesus is just a crazy guy out in the desert saying crazy things that everyone should ignore. And if he dies and stays in the tomb, he's a crazy guy that said crazy stuff. But by the resurrection, it shows that he said everything correctly. That his relationship with God, that his claims to knowing God were true. And so when he is raised, he now has this authority, this divine authority. He says, if you want to know who's got God's ear, it's me. I used to be dead and I am no longer. And so when he brings his 11 together, he goes, I give my authority to you. It's like taking a a soldier or a knight or a police officer and, and giving them the authority to go and protect people. Right? They are allowed to do things that everybody else isn't allowed to do. They're given the right and the power and um, the legal kind of status to do new things. This passage is really important for us because when we start to think about sharing our faith with other people, the question a lot of us ask is, well, what right do I have? I mean, I, I know that the Bible talks about telling other people about Jesus, but what right do I have to meddle in their lives? Who am I to tell them about Jesus? Who am I to suggest anything? And the answer is, you have the authority of Jesus Christ. Right? This passage is very clear. Jesus says, I give you my authority. In the same way that I am king of the universe, as king, I am now knighting you, go out and go change the world. All of these things that I've taught you about love and kindness and acceptance and grace and peace and mercy, teach that to other people. Tell other people to do that. And when you feel full of doubt, like, well, I don't know if it's my place. Of course it's your place. I've given you authority to go do it. And so Jesus gives them the right to go out and try to change the world and make it the kind of place that Jesus has has dreamed that it might become. He then gives us uh, several kind of um, commands. I put them in different colors here. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
Uh, the go is interesting because the go is outward focused, right? Notice Jesus does not say, all right, now that I've done all this, now that you've read all about my life, now that I've died, now that I've been raised, if you want to live like me, start a church, put up a sign, maybe send out an advertisement or two on Facebook, and then sit in the building and wait for other people to show up, right? Uh, this is not an attractional model of how to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus says, doesn't say sit. He doesn't say wait. He doesn't say attract or bring in. He says, go. Your expectation is that you live in the world. This is one of the reasons why I'm not a real big fan of like monastic Christianity because there's not enough going. There's not enough us moving out into the world and being agents of reconciliation and peace and joy and all those kinds of things. Jesus doesn't ask the disciples to sit on their hands. He says, if you are my disciple, you are a moving person. You are someone who is going. You are somebody who is active. You are somebody who is... Uh, part of a movement that I'm building. And so the go is just really important. It moves outwards, not inwards. Then make disciples. So this is where it gets a little difficult for us, right? Um, if we're honest, we live in a culture where disciple making, or as your neighbors maybe uh, sneer and call it um, converting or proselytizing. That's the really nasty one, right? Like, oh, are you proselytizing? Um, this is something that kind of rubs people the wrong way. Why would you go and make disciples? Why does Jesus send out Jesus' followers to convince other people to become his followers? And I think there's a couple reasons for it. I want to spend a little time on this. The first is, if you have read through the book of Matthew and you have believed what Jesus has said, as these disciples have, then you are convinced that the reality of the universe is that Jesus is in control and Jesus is in charge and that Jesus is a good and gracious king. And if you are convinced of that, then you wouldn't want everyone else to live in a lie. Right? Part of the reason Jesus says to make disciples is because these, uh, these, tw these 11 are convinced at their deepest heart and many of you in this room are convinced in the deepest sense of you that Jesus is the good and gracious king of the universe and so why would you go around pretending like that wasn't true it's just a matter of acknowledging the reality of the universe it'd be like if one of us tried to say that you know Ralph Nader was president right now Ralph Nader is not president right you may think that and that might be a lovely idea in your mind but it's not reality and when we see someone who's just living outside of reality, we generally will try to say something like, oh, that's not right. And so Jesus says to make disciples in part because it's just the reality of Jesus' kingdom. But second of all, um, there is the sense that people are going to serve someone. Uh, Bob Dylan, you may not know, went through a gospel period in the 80s where he did a couple of gospel albums. And his most famous song had this line... Um, it was a song called You Gotta Serve Somebody. And the line was, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And the concept of the song is that we all live under somebody's authority. We all live under someone's dominion. We all uh, are servants to some kingdom. And so Jesus wants them to make disciples so that they will live 
under the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of greed or the kingdom of all sorts of other things, right? Um, Jesus is sending them to make disciples so that they can experience the fullness of what it is to live under a good and gracious king. Another reason Jesus sends them out, though, is it's just good to celebrate and share joy. Um, this was in the Alpha video this week and I think is, is very obvious to us, uh, particularly now that we live in a social media world. When you have something that's really exciting, when you, I don't know, buy a new house or you go to a wedding or you saw a great movie or something, what do most of us do? We pull out our phone, we pull up Facebook, and we're like, guys, I did this thing and it was so awesome and you should see, right? Like we want to share it with people. When you have something that's good and awesome in your life, you share it. This is also why a lot of us have like a weekly message about how much we love our spouse, right? Because we just want to share with people how awesome our spouse is. Like this is something that people do. And so why does Jesus say to make disciples? It's because this is good news. This is exciting news. These things that we have learned throughout this gospel of Matthew, these ways that Jesus says the world should be different, the way that you should treat people, the way that uh, dignity and worth needs to be given to others. This is the kind of thing that we should be so excited about, we'd naturally share it. The same way you'd share the photos of, some, of somebody's wedding. Because I have experienced this goodness. I want you to experience as well. The final thing, and I think this is a, a small but important point that I think we miss, Jesus does say, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus has a clear vision that every ethnic and social and cultural and religious and socioeconomic, every group of people in the world are equally welcome in the kingdom of God. And I'm going to make a claim here that maybe you may or not may agree with and maybe don't, but I don't believe you can truly be a fully open community if you are not an evangelizing community. I just want you to think about that for a second. If you are not actively involved in trying to bring in new people from new places, then by de facto, you're not really all that open. Imagine a movie came out and all the actors in it were white men, right? Uh, obviously, in our culture, someone would go, hmm, that's a little unusual. Why does your movie have only white men? And imagine if the director said, Oh, well, I mean, that's just all my friends are white men, so I just put all my friends in it, and that's what was in it. What would we say? You didn't do any casting? You didn't go out there to find any actors of color, to find any actresses? You didn't go out there to in any way expand your realm of, of reference? You just went with people who are just like you? And we'd crucify them for it, and rightfully so, because our world is diverse. If any organization was filled of one ethnic group and one socioeconomic group, we would say, how, why in the world are you not trying to recruit to diversify your organization? And this is part of what Jesus is doing. Jesus says, go into all nations and make disciples because this isn't truly for everyone unless we're offering it to everyone. It's one thing to say, hey, you're welcome here, and it's another thing to go out of your way to make sure someone feels welcome here. And you can't do that if you're not openly engaging the invitation. If we're not telling our neighbors, you are welcome here, then putting it on our sign and hoping they happen to read it as they walk by is really a phony baloney way to make them feel welcome. Right? You talk to people and you say, you are welcome in this. 
And Jesus does a beautiful thing, right? These are real pictures of real Christians from all around the world. There is not a major place on the planet where Christianity has not gone because the openness of the church to all people from all walks of life in all situations and all backgrounds is a truly revolutionary and beautiful part of what the kingdom of God looks like. And this commission to go and make disciples is at the root of why the church is potentially the most multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilinguistic organization on earth is because of that deep desire to go and to share. So Jesus says, go make disciples. Baptize. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to say here, but it is very important, I think, that when Jesus wants to talk about how to make a disciple, the very first thing he says is, hey, go baptize people. Uh, this is helpful to us to remember that baptism is the shorthand for how to make a new disciple. Uh, this is one of the reasons we practice believer's baptism here at the feast. And we encourage people when they come to faith and want to accept Jesus as king of their life to, be, uh, to symbolize that with a baptism. Because even for Jesus, that's the shorthand. When he wants to say, become a Christian, he says, get baptized. Those two things go together. And so um, I just want to kind of point that out in the middle of this text. And then finally, teach them to obey everything you've been taught. Jesus is saying, here's the deal. Once you convince them to become Christians and they are baptized and they come into it, now go do the stuff I told you to do. Throughout the book of Matthew, you guys, for 28 weeks, we have talked about what the kingdom of God looks like, what it looks like when God rules in the world. And that has been a lot of different things and we could uh, go through and list like 28 lessons that we've learned, right, throughout this book. But that only happens if we actually obey and do what Jesus tells us to do. That kingdom that is coming comes via our work and our cooperation with Jesus. The Holy Spirit empowers us. We don't get the credit, but we are asked to cooperate with God. And so he says, go out and teach them to obey these things, to do as they're told. That the world will not be a better place if I do what I want. It becomes a better place when I do what God wants. All right, uh, what I want to finish with here as we wrap up is um, Christianity demands this commission. In the church, we are really guilty of thinking that this great commission is Jesus sending out all the ministers of the world to go and do their job as paid clergy, right? Or this is the missionary's job. This is why we send money to missionaries to go other places and to do this so that we can check this off our list. For Jesus, this is at the core of what it means like to follow him. For Matthew, this is the launch point from his book. He says, if you believe anything of the previous 27 chapters, then this is how you have to live it out in chapter 28. You've got to go and you've got to make disciples and you've got to teach them how to do God's will. And that is not something for just the anointed. It is not just something for the clergy. It's not just something for special people. That is something for all followers of Jesus. In the DNA of Christianity is that a follower of Jesus is someone who creates other followers of Jesus who create other followers of Jesus who create other followers of Jesus. When you look at the rapid expansion of the church, these 11 men 
were incapable of making the church what it was a hundred years later. The only way that happened is thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians that sat in pews who went over to their neighbor and they said, this great thing happened to me. I want to share it with you. This commission to go, honestly, is not an optional add-on part of the faith. It's not like a you know, 401 class for the people wanting to major in God's work. It is the basic core of how you live out Jesus' life is to go and spread his kingdom. So what does that look like? I mean, it can look like a lot of things. Um, it can look like when we're f- with our fellow Christians, we help teach each other to obey, right? Where we see somebody in the church and they're like, oh, I've just really been struggling with this. You can say, you know what? I've been there and let me just tell you how God grew me. Let me tell you the ways that I've learned to better be obedient. It also means looking for opportunities to talk about the goodness of God with people who are not Christians, people who are in your workplaces, people who are in your neighborhoods, people who are in your communities. And don't get me wrong. Don't be obnoxious, right? I'm not talking about going around, knocking on doors, and handing out pamphlets. I'm saying when you've got somebody at work and they're really struggling, saying a simple thing like, hey, I I pray. Is it all right if I pray about this for you? Or when somebody says, oh, you know, I just, I wish that I had someone to talk to about this. Go, you know, I have friends at church that I talk to about this stuff, and it really is valuable for me. Would you like me to, like, connect you with our preacher or something like that? Like, these are little things that you can do. But God gives opportunities for us to share, and frankly, he expects for us to do it. Um. Another simple thing we've always talked about is an adventure, uh, is a being an organization of invitation, right? Uh, we're having a big Christmas service next week. It will be a fun time to be here at church, okay? The sermon will be far more uh, visitor-friendly than maybe this sermon is this week, but it uh, will have a lot of fun. We'll sing Christmas songs. It'll be all decorated. We'll have the baby deal. There's going to be food. It's going to be awesome. This week, just invite a couple of people. Just say, hey, we're doing this Christmas service. It's awesome. You know, Christmas is so filled in our culture that people still have some desire to go to church at Christmas time, even if they don't go to church any other time. So just say, hey, join me. We have these awesome little cards that Jordan made up a long time ago. So I have a bunch of them. It's got our church. It's got when we meet. It's got our core values. It has our website. It has a Bible verse. These things, we have plenty of them. Grab a couple, and when you invite someone, go, hey, our church is doing a thing. We'd love for you to come. Put it in their hand. If they throw it away, that's okay. It costs like four cents, right? Like, we just want to be a, vo- uh, a culture of welcoming and invitation. Because if we're not actively inviting people, we're also kind of telling them they're not welcome. I-, I really do believe that's a binary one way or another. And here's the really cool thing. When we live that way, when we live as disciples of Jesus who are trying to share the good stuff he's done in our hearts, in the same way you'd share a great movie or a great restaurant or a recipe, you would say, this has been awesome for me. I'd love for you to experience it too. Jesus has this promise at the end, and I will be with you even until the end of the age. No matter how rough or difficult the things are, I'm present And so as Matthew wraps up his gospel, he says all of these ways that God is trying to change the world, his mechanism for doing it is you. The way that you live and the way that you share his vision of what it looks like to love God and love neighbors as yourself, 
that is done through you. And so it empowers us to go and to make a difference. This isn't just for our church, though it will help our church grow. It isn't just for me because it would make me feel great to see more people here. Like this is at the core of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, is that you are a person who goes and disciples and baptizes and teaches. And that is a core responsibility of what it means to step in Jesus' steps because that's who he was and it's who he calls us to be. All right, uh, Q&A. What do you got? What questions do you guys have maybe about today's sermon? Yeah. So that that is that is one of the classic challenges for a church that you've brought up is committing to things that are for new people that might not be personally the most fulfilling in the world. So like when we do alpha, alpha isn't designed for long-time lifelong Christians. But the learning that happens in Alpha for a lifelong Christian is the learning of how to share and how to engage and how to disciple and, right? Like, so yes, that is one of the challenges for a church is that if we do not continue to do things that are faced outwards and faced for people who are new and we try to just go deeper and deeper and deeper into faith, then we become a, um, a selfish organization, an organization that's focused on us and not others. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a, a big challenge for a church. Yeah. Uh, let me say quickly on the evangelized word because it does freak people out. And I think this is really helpful. Everyone in this country evangelizes about something. For some people, it's uh, nutritional supplements. For some people, it's their political candidate. For some people, it's the latest show on Netflix that they love. But everyone that you know at some point comes up to you and goes, hey, there's this thing I really love. You should try it. And, you know, someone came up to you and was like, oh, Brita, I just started watching this new TV show and it was great. You should try it. Very few of us are going to be like, I am offended. How dare you suggest that I would like a TV show, right? Like, that's bizarre. Like, we, we, we share things that we're excited about. And so that's all, I mean, it's a big word, but evangelize just means share good news. That's literally all the word means. So all you're saying is, hey, you know what? This thing is really awesome, and it gives me a lot of happiness and joy, and it is important in my life, and it's so good for me, it could be good for you too. Try it out with me. That's really all ultimately we're saying. Um, but yeah, it does. that word is, I think, very scary. Any other questions? So the danger of a good, uh, the Great Commission sermon is that you feel bow, browbeat and you're like, oh, that's one more thing I'm supposed to do that I don't do really well. But that's not like, like the hope here is not to be like, you must do this. I mean, the hope is that the joy and the beauty that wells up inside of you of experiencing the goodness of Jesus just naturally like pops out of your mouth because you're excited, you know? Yeah. That's a good question. How to? Because sometimes it's my church, and so then it's like we look at people who are going to churches other place and try to pick them off to come to our church, right? Like in the worst examples. Um, yeah, this is where um, it is interesting. Jesus does not say go into all the nations and create churches, right? He says make disciples, and so you do have to constantly work on your heart. There, you may have a great relationship with somebody at work and talk about Jesus, maybe study the Bible with them, maybe they become a Christian and then they go to somebody else's church, right? That's okay. That's cool, 
right? Like that's uh, that you made a disciple and that's what you're called to do. Um, it is a constant heart check. Now, I will say from a local church perspective, if all of our members are great about going into the world and teaching people about Jesus, we'll never hurt for attendance, right? Like it, maybe not all of those people will come to our church, but some of them will, right? And so it's, it is a positive side effect. But ultimately, you're right. The focus here is on disciple making, not church planting. Now, I like church planting because church planting tends to be the context statistically where the most disciples get made. Uh, and so that's, that's where some of that drive comes from. But we never want to get territorial where it's about the kingdom of the feast instead of it's about the kingdom of God. I think that's really helpful. And how do you do that? It's just a relationship with God and really just intent spiritual prayer and discipline and checking yourself when you feel feelings of jealousy when someone goes somewhere else. You're like, oh, wait a minute, Caleb, that's not good, right? You know, like holding that in check is just spiritual discipline, I think. 